If you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90 is where we will be today. We're going to do our best to look at uh, all 17 verses here in Psalm chapter 90. The title of our message is Defining God. Defining God. Psalm chapter 90. I want to begin our time in the Word by going to the Word and reading um, this entire psalm. And uh, just a reminder, this is the Word of God. This is not the Word of man. This is the Word of God. Psalm chapter 90. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever You had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your anger we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Simple question, hard answer. How would you define God? How would you define God? A.W. Tozier said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I, I agree with Tozier. I agree with that statement. But why is it that such an emphasis can be placed on our knowledge of God. I mean, why can it be said that that is the most important thing about us, what we believe about God? Well, I would argue that the greatest predictor of a man is his thoughts about God. Because our thoughts about God, who we believe God to be, are the primary factor in how we live our lives. I want to know how somebody's going to live their lives. Let them tell me what they believe about God. If we know God well, then we will navigate life well in the world God has made. But if we don't know God well, then our lives will be a mess as we seek to navigate life apart from the God who made the world in which we live. And yet, as I think about my own life, and even as I look at others, though I point the finger at myself most of all, how little time do so many of us give in our lives to the study of God? And I don't mean going to a school and taking a class about God. I mean opening up our Bibles and studying about God. Theologian J.I. Packer 
wrote of the cruelty we show ourselves in trying to live in a world created by God without spending adequate time getting to know the God who made the world. And he gave a great illustration. Uh, and I'm just going to summarize his illustration this way. Imagine for a moment that you dropped off a tribesman from the Amazon. Tribesman from the Amazon. Born and raised in the Amazon jungle. Never left before in his life. Always lived there. You, you, you dropped him off in the middle of London. Just dropped him off in the middle of London. And you said, good luck, and you walked away. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I think it's safe to assume that things are going to turn disastrous for that tribesman from the Amazon very, very quickly. He is going to be confused and frustrated and lost and probably a danger to himself and those around him. Friends, that's what it's like trying to live your life in this world without proper knowledge of God, except that's even more disastrous, trying to live in this world without proper knowledge of God. But how many people are living their lives without a proper knowledge of who the one true God is? I love Packer's words. He, he said this. He said, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. And I love this, this sentence here. He says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. Strong, powerful words. Very, very true words. And this is why our thoughts about God must be shaped by Scripture, what God has Reveal to us about who he is so that we don't stumble and blunder our way through life blindfolded. Now, in Psalm chapter 90, we learn this. I'm going to give you a, a weighty, a meaty summary statement, but this is a, a meaty, weighty psalm, okay? Um, here's our summary statement. Despite the vast difference between the eternal God and frail humanity, God's steadfast love means he is able to provide himself as a dwelling place for sinners who deserve his wrath. I know that's a lot. This is a, it's a lengthy psalm, and there's a lot here. Despite the vast difference between the eternal God and frail humanity, God's steadfast love means that he is able to provide himself as a dwelling place for sinners who deserve his wrath. You want Psalm 90 in a nutshell? There it is, right there. Now, last week I shared with you that for several weeks we're going to be studying various psalms in order to see what they teach us about different doctrines and theology. Last week we began with the doctrine of revelation. We began with the doctrine of revelation. And we learned that we can know things about God because God has revealed himself to us. And we talked about ways in which God has done that. Today we have before us this magnificent psalm and a magnificent doctrine. Psalm chapter 90 and the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. Now, we could turn really to any passage in Scripture and talk about the doctrine of God. Because all of Scripture is about God. It is His self-revelation of Himself to us. But I chose this passage particularly because I think it provides us with a, a great overview of who God is, especially when it comes to God's character. And, and yet, because... And we kind of talked about this last week. Because a right understanding of God leads you to a right understanding of yourself, Psalm 90 will not only teach you about God, Psalm 90 will teach you about you. 
My prayer is that as we learn about God and ourselves, that we will not walk blindly through this world, but we will walk well. We'll walk as someone who defines God correctly as we walk through this world that he has made. Let me share with you three truths from Psalm chapter 90 today. Number one is this. Number one is this. God's eternal nature exposes your fast approaching death. God's eternal nature exposes your fast approaching death. The psalm begins this way. Just beautiful, glorious words. If you're looking for some verses to memorize, commit to memory, try verses 1 and 2 of Psalm chapter 90. Try the whole psalm if you want to, but start with verses 1 and 2. Beautiful words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The, the title Lord means master or ruler. And so we see the psalmist is confessing the sovereignty of God in this statement and is placing himself under the rule of God. Just by that first word, Lord. The fact that he calls God Lord, he's saying, God, you are the ruler of my life. But he also, in the same verse, calls God our dwelling place. You see, there's a deeper relationship which exists between God and his people than merely a ruler-servant type relationship. God is the ruler and we are his servants. And yet at the same time, there's this intimate type relationship where the psalmist is able to say, Lord, master, king, you have been our dwelling place. That's a good thing. That dwelling place is a safe place. It's like a refuge. It's like shelter. You see, God, the ruler, is also God, the refuge. God, the sovereign, is also God, the shelter. God the king is also God the caretaker. In the words of one writer, we are his to command, though he is also ours to enjoy. And if that seems like an odd combination of descriptions, don't be alarmed. That's how God has revealed himself to us. Those aren't contradictory. That's who God is. That's how he's revealed himself to us. Don't be alarmed. I would just say be amazed and be thankful. Be amazed and be thankful that God is our king, but he's also a king who cares deeply for us. Now, the rest of the psalm really unpacks these two themes of God's supreme sovereignty over humanity and his tender care, even when we rebel against his authority. Now, look at verse 2. Just incredible. We could, we could, we could spend all our time just on verses 1 and 2. We're not going to do that, but we could. They're incredible. Verse 2, probably one of, the, one of the most telling verses in the Bible when it comes to just defining who God is. Notice what verse 2 says. The psalmist writes, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So many things we can learn just in that one verse. We learn that God is the creator of the whole, whole world. We talked about that some last week in Psalm 19. We learned that God alone is God. He, he is God. You are God. Not you are one of many gods. You are God. And we also learned this very important truth. And this is what we're going to spend a little bit, bit of time on here. We learned that God is eternal. God is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting. From eternity to eternity. You are God. Scripture says that God is eternal. It means not only that he has existed for all time, but that he exists outside of time. This is one of those things where it just kind of makes your mind hurt a little bit when you start trying to wrap your mind about around this truth about who God is. There's never been a time when God has not existed, nor will there ever be a time when God does not exist. But it's even greater than that. His, his eternality is even greater than that. He, he is the creator of time itself. It's not just that he exists 
within time for all times. He exists outside of times. I don't really even know what that that looks like. I don't know. I can't comprehend that, but that's who God is. In a moment, we're going to look at verse 4 a little bit more closely, but skip ahead for just a moment. Notice that it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Why don't you consider for a moment how long a thousand years seems to us? Very long time, right? But to God, it's just like a day. Even, even more than that, it's like a watch in the night, which is equivalent to just a few hours. The point is that all time is simply the present for God. God reveals himself to us in time, but he exists outside of time. Hard to, hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? But that's, that's our God. That's how sovereign, that's how in control he is. Now, just as we saw last week, it is impossible to think about God without also thinking about ourselves because The more we understand who God is, the more we understand rightly and accurately who we are. I heard about a people group in Suriname, uh, which is a country in South America. And this group of people, um, this people group, they they have lots of proverbs, you know, they they live by and and they like to quote to one another. And uh, one of their proverbs is this. I see a spoon, I think of rice. I see a spoon, I think of rice. I mean, maybe I put it this, uh, for, for me, I would say, I see a grill and I think of burgers, right? The point is, I see one thing, but it makes me think about something else. I see a spoon, but I don't think about the spoon. I see the spoon, I think of rice. And the same thing is kind of true when it comes to God. I see the eternal nature of God in this passage, but my mind all of a sudden goes to my fast approaching death. I see God and how eternal he is, and it makes me think about how not eternal I am. He is infinite. I am not. The psalmist continues to speak about the eternal nature of God, but he does so in relation to the non-eternal nature of humanity. Look at verse 3. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Now, to be returned to dust is a reference to our death. To be returned to dust, he's speaking of our death. And again, we see the theme of God's sovereign rule of our lives. He is the one who returns us to dust. Notice that. He is the one who returns us to dust. He is the one who holds our breath in his hand, as Job says. He is sovereign over our very life and over our death. But the focus here is on the shortness of our lives compared to the everlasting nature of God. Of God. We die. God does not. We live inside of time here on this earth for only a short period of time. But the same is not true of God. The psalmist says in verse 10 that for most people, for most people, about 70 or 80 years, right? That's Maybe kind of an average. Maybe it was in this day and time. It seems like it was. Verse 10, 70 or 80 years. Now, of course, somebody might argue, well, there was a time when people lived like almost a thousand years, right? There was a time when people lived almost a thousand years. That's true. The book of Genesis, which was written by Moses, who also was very likely the human author of Psalm chapter 90, he talks about the length of people's lives before the flood. It was after the flood that God shortened the lifespan of people. But before the flood, people lived a long time. Methuselah, he's he's the the oldest guy we have recorded in the Bible. You might know how old he lived to be. 969 years. That's a long time. And yet, there's no room for even Methuselah to boast about how long he lives because a thousand years is like a watch in the night for the Lord. It's nothing. We could live a thousand years and it would still be just nothing compared to how eternal God is. The shortness of our lives is illustrated here 
in, uh, in three ways in verses 5 and 6. Notice three, these three ways that God illustrates how short our lives are. It says, you sweep them away as with a flood. It's the first illustration. They are like a dream, second illustration, and like grass, third illustration, that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. I'm sure you've seen video footage. I hope you've never seen it in person and been a part of it, but I'm sure you've seen video footage of homes being swept away in a flood. Have you ever watched that? It's, it's, it's horrible to watch. But you ever notice how quickly it happens? I mean, it's just this home is sitting here, and just within a matter of seconds, it's gone, right? I mean, just, I mean, just rips it off the foundation, it's gone. How quickly that happens. And we've all had dreams in the night. I had some crazy dreams last night. Um, thankfully, I can't remember them. They were just weird, just weird dreams. Uh, but uh, we, have, we have those dreams. But as quickly as you have them, you wake up and they're gone, right? Just like that. Those dreams are gone. In the Middle Eastern setting of this psalm, grass could sprout in the morning, and by evening, the scorching Middle Eastern sun would have withered it away. Pops up in the morning, by evening, it's gone. Friends, God is eternal, but you are not. And not only are you not eternal, but listen, this is such an important truth. Your death is quickly approaching. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. Your death is quickly approaching. Now, we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We try our hardest to put off death. <laughs> Yesterday, I, I, I typed in a search engine on the Internet. I typed this in, reversing aging. Just typed in those two words, reversing aging. Eight. 8.6 million hits, 8.6 million articles and videos and commentary on reversing aging. And they weren't all saying, that's foolish. They were all telling me how I could reverse aging in my life. I found tips to help me reverse the aging process. I found news stories telling me that scientists are developing ways to reverse the aging process. I found a video of a Harvard professor who... I'd actually watched all of it, but I didn't. I was not going to waste my time doing that. But if I had watched all of it, he was going to tell me how I could reverse the aging process. He has a book, and this is the title of his book, Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. Now, y'all, I don't have a degree from Harvard by any stretch of the imagination, but I am smart enough to know that I can't reverse the aging process, and nor can some guy from Harvard. I don't, don't quote me on my statistics here, but I am pretty sure that there is a 0% success rate at reversing the aging process and a 100% success rate at succumbing to the aging process. I'd say the odds are stacked against this Harvard grad. And yet we often live as though death were not right around the corner. We can laugh at him, but when we look at our lives, we often live as though death were not right around the corner. I believe this psalm is meant to wake us up to the reality of the brevity of our lives as we consider the God who is eternal. And so first, God's eternal nature exposes your fast-approaching death. But secondly today, I want you to see this in this psalm. This is very important. God's wrath warns of your sin-induced destruction. God's wrath warns of your sin-induced Destruction, that is destruction that comes as a result of sin. God's wrath warns us of that. Inquisitive minds, I tend to have an inquisitive mind, um, which means I shouldn't get on to one of my daughters who also has a very inquisitive mind and ask lots of why questions because I ask lots of why questions. My parents would probably attest 
that when I was little, I asked lots of why questions. But I still ask lots of why questions, especially when I'm studying Scripture. And so by the end of verse 6, I'm asking why questions. Why is it that we fade away? Why is it that we don't live forever? Why is it that death is quickly approaching every single one of us? Why? Now, secular society will say that death can be explained through natural processes. They say that the problem lies in the breakdown of our chromosomes inside of our bodies. They say that the problem lies in the breakdown of our cells in our bodies. And that is true to an extent, but that really doesn't answer why do we die. Friends, the reason we die is not something that can be seen under a microscope. But it is something that God's Word reveals to us. The problem is that we are sinners and God is wrathful towards sinners. We are sinners and God is wrathful towards sinners. This is what we see in verses 7 through 11. Multiple times in these verses we see God's wrath and anger directed toward sinners. Verse 7 says, For we are brought to an end by, not our breakdown of our bodies, but by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. So the first answer to the question, why do we die, is that God is angry with us and is wrathful toward us, and thus we are brought to an end and dismayed. That word dismayed is used in the book of Judges to refer to an army that is facing disaster. It's like saying, we're doomed. (laughs) That's what, that's, what, that's what that verse, I mean, that word dismayed means. We are doomed. We are doomed because God is angry with us. But let me ask you another question. If we die because God is angry with us, then why is God angry with us? And verse 8 answers that question. Verse 8 says this, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Because the reason God is wrathful toward us, the reason we die, the reason we don't live forever is because we are sinners. One of the most important things that we can know about God is that he does not ignore our sin, but exposes it in full before himself. God does not ignore our sin, our rebellion against him, but he exposes it in full before himself. Every sin, the sin that everyone knows about and the sin that no one knows about, our iniquities, verse 8, and our secret sins, in verse 8, are brought to light in the light of the presence of God. And the result of that is that we fall under God's wrath. Psalmist goes on in verse 9 and 10 to say this. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Church, something has gone terribly wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. Last week we saw in Psalm 19 that creation is declaring the glory of God. We are a part of His creation. And so why are we dying instead of living to declare the glory of God? Why is work hard and often seemingly meaningless? Why are our days filled with toil and trouble? The answer is sin. In fact, the psalmist already hinted at sin um, being the root of the problem when he said back in verse 3, You return man to dust. Now, where in the Bible would you probably turn if you wanted to read about humans and dust? If I said, turn to to somewhere in the Bible that talks about humans and dust, where would you go? There you go. I I see some of you answering correctly. Probably go to Genesis, right? You go to Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He formed man from the dust. Now we know from Genesis 1 that God looked at everything he made and said, It is very good. We also know that there was a tree in the garden called the tree of life, which the first man and woman had permission to eat of. They could eat of any tree in the garden, except for the tree of knowledge and good and evil, which means they could eat of the tree of life. So everything is very good. It's made from dust. Everything's very good. And they have permission to eat from the tree of life. Here's what that means. All, all, all of that means that Adam was made from dust, but he was never intended to return to dust. Adam was made from dust, but he was never intended to return to dust. He was good, and he was meant to eat from the tree of life, and therefore he was meant to live forever. However, the story doesn't end with Genesis 1 and 2. We have Genesis 3, where Adam rebelled against God, and God cursed creation, and God cursed Adam. And here's what God said. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See what's happened here? The reason we return to dust, the reason we die, is because of sin. The reason work is hard and life is filled with pain and toil and trouble and sorrow is because of sin. Adam felt the effects of sin in his life. Moses felt the effects of sin in his day. One commentator suggested that Moses may have written this psalm in response to the events that took place, recorded for us, in Numbers chapter 20. You know what happens in Numbers chapter 20? His sister Miriam dies. Then Moses sins against God, and God punishes him by telling him he's not going to be able to go to the promised land. And in the end of the chapter, his brother Aaron dies who was also the high priest of Israel. Sin and death. Sin and death. And certainly the nation of Israel, reading this psalm while they were in exile and returning to their land which had been destroyed, understood the heartbreak of sin and death. And sin and death. And nothing changed between the Old and the New Testaments. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because... All sin. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin and death. Sin and death. And friends, the same is true today. We see it all around us. We see it in ourselves. Sin and death. Sin and death. Sin wreaks havoc and destruction in our lives, bringing our lives to an end, though God designed us originally to live forever. Here's the thing. If we ignore the truth that God is wrathful, then we will probably ignore the problem of our sin. You see what the psalmist is doing? He's making us look at the spoon and think about the rice, right? He's saying, look at God and see His wrath, but let that make you think about how sinful you are. The psalmist ends this section in verse 11 with a probing question. He asks this question. This question, man, it's just been, been, been in my mind. I've been studying this. Who... Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who? Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Oh, sinner, 
Have you considered the power of the anger of the eternal God of the universe? Have you considered the wrath of God according to the measure of disrespect you have shown Him through all of your sinning? Church, we must wake up to the reality of our impending death so that we will wake up to the reality of our sin so that we will realize that we are sinners under the wrath of the Almighty God. And the only just punishment for rebelling against an eternal God is eternal punishment. But it's even worse than that. Our sin is so deep that Scripture says we are dead in our sin. That means left to ourselves, we will not wake up to the reality of our sin and God's wrath. And so we need divine intervention. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's exactly where the psalmist turns to. In the last section of this psalm. Praise God, there is more to this psalm. God is eternal, church. God is wrathful, church. But God is also compassionate. God is a compassionate God. The third truth I want to share with you is this. God's compassion provides you with a grace-based salvation. God's compassion provides you with a grace-based salvation salvation now beginning in verse 12 and going through the rest of the psalm we see the psalmist make several requests of the Lord he doesn't argue his case before God when he's confronted with his sin he doesn't argue his case he doesn't present God with a list of good things that he's done. Well, I know I'm a sinner, but God, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. I've done some good things. He doesn't do that. He simply makes requests. And you know what? That's all a guilty person can do is make a request for mercy. To say, I'm guilty. Please help me. Not because I'm worthy of it. Please help me out of your mercy. His first request is a request to have his sin-hardened heart awakened to the reality of his short life. He says in verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now this request is in response to the question that was posed in verse 11. We, who, who considers God's wrath towards us? Well, apart from God awakening inside of us um, just our faith and reality that we are sinners, we won't. We need God to teach us to number our days. We need God to give us a heart of wisdom so that we will consider how we have not lived in reverent fear of God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Our problem is that we don't fear the Lord, which means we don't have wisdom. And therefore, we need God to teach us to number our days so that we will be wise. Not only wise in how we use our days, but also wise in preparing for that day when our days are over. Psalmist is not simply asking God to help him count to 70 or 80. That's not what he's saying. Oh God, I, 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 know, I know we live around 70 or 80, but I don't really know how to count that high. Can you help me? Can you teach me to count my days? No, that's not what he's doing. He's asking God to change his heart so that he will prepare well for death. One writer said this, the numbering of days, referring to this verse, the numbering of days is a lesson not in elementary arithmetic, but in life-changing theology. Very true. And when he says, Teach me to number my days, he is asking God to change his heart. Next, he makes a request for God's compassion. He says, Return, O Lord, how long? 
Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity or have compassion is another way to translate that on your servants. This request for God to return or turn back is a request for God to relent of his wrath, to turn back his wrath from the sinner, to have pity or compassion, as the second half of the verse says. This was the cry of Moses who wrote this psalm. This is a cry of Moses at Mount Sinai when God was going to destroy the people of Israel. You remember that for worshiping the golden calf? And God's like, I'm destroying, I'm, I'm destroying them all, I'm starting over. And, and Moses says this in Exodus 32, verse 12, turn. And he asked God, he says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. This is the cry of repentance. The plea for mercy that must come from every sinner who hopes to be rescued from God's wrath. And then in verse 14, the psalmist asked for rest. He asked for rest. He says in verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may be glad and rejoice all our days. Listen, when you're under conviction, when you know you are guilty, when you know God is not pleased and you deserve, your, you deserve His wrath, you are, you're, you are restless. Your heart is restless. You try to fill it with all sorts of things, money, pleasure, good deeds, relationships, whatever. But nothing can quiet the longing of your heart to be back in a right relationship with your Creator except the Creator Himself. The only thing that can satisfy the longing of our heart is to be made right with God. And we can be made right with God because God is steadfast in love towards sinners. Because of His steadfast love, God can satisfy us in the morning with mercies which are new, church, new every morning. Augustine, the church father, said this, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Today is your heart restless because you know that you are under the wrath of the Almighty God and you've tried everything, but it's not it's not fixing that problem of sin in your life. The satisfaction then that God gives us leads to gladness and joy in the place of wrath and doom. And this takes us straight into the next verse, verse 15, where we see a specific request for gladness or joy. Verse 15 says, make us glad. Here's the request. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Now, this, this is an incredible request. We're under the wrath of God, and yet the person under the wrath of God is asking God to make him glad. It's an incredible request, but this request doesn't even go far enough. It doesn't go far as far into the love of God as God in Christ is willing to take us. Notice the specific request. The psalmist requests in verse uh, 15 He requests for gladness that matches his affliction. You see that? Give us gladness that matches how afflicted we are. But church, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us gladness that exceeds our affliction. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth even comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, we find these words. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond our, all comparison. I like what one writer said. He said the New Testament will, Testament will outrun this modest prayer for joys to balance sorrows. In other words, as, as, as incredible as this request is, it doesn't even come up to the level of grace that God is willing to show us. He's not even asking God for as much as God is willing to give. Certainly God, through His compassion and love, provides us with far more than just an amount of joy equal to the sorrows of this life. For the eternal God, church, saves us for all of eternity. 
He replaces the sin-induced destruction of our short lives here with the eternal happiness of dwelling with Him and in Him forever and ever and ever. And then in verse 16, the psalmist requests that God's powerful work be shown both now and to coming generations. He says this in verse 16, Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Now, based on the context, the powerful working of God that he's referring to here must be God's work of salvation. And so what the psalmist is asking is for God to reveal this work to himself, to those around him, and to those who will come after him. He wants God to continue revealing himself as the God who saves sinners from their sin. But if Moses only knew... If Moses, making this request, God, keep revealing yourself as the God of salvation. If he only knew the extent to which God would show his glorious power of heart awakening, wrath turning, joy giving, eternally satisfying, compassionate, steadfast love. If he only knew, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If he only knew what was coming, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you only knew that in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If He only knew for the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God certainly was going to continue revealing himself as the God who is powerful to save. And he was going to do that. And he has done that through Jesus Christ. It is through Christ and Christ alone that salvation from the wrath of God has been accomplished for you and for me. Jesus took God's wrath towards us upon himself when he hung on the cross and bled and died. He did it for our sins and he conquered death, the consequence of sin, by rising up from the grave. And so through Jesus, God is able to provide you with a free gift of salvation if you will believe in him. You don't have to work for it. It is a gift. And that's exactly where the psalmist ends in verse 17 with a request for God's grace. It's like he's asking for these things and he finishes by saying, and please just give it to me because I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. Look at the last verse in this psalm. Let the favor, some translation would say the beauty or the pleasantness, or you could even say the grace of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Church, our only hope of being rescued from the wrath of the eternal God is for that same God to shower us with his favor, with his grace, which he does through Jesus, his eternal son. And when he does that, Go back to verse 1. He becomes our dwelling place for all generations. For the glory and the wisdom of God, the eternal God under whose wrath we should fall, becomes our dwelling place under whose shelter we rest. You can never come up with that. I can never come up with this grand plan of salvation. 
And now our lives can have meaning. Now our labor is not in vain. Now we work for the Lord. Now He establishes our work as He repeats two times in verse 17. Because our work is filled with meaning because it is flowing from His grace. As the poet said, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Church, we are ruled by a great God who is eternal, wrathful, and compassionate toward repentant sinners. So let me ask you a question. Is this God your dwelling place today? Won't you confess your sin and request His compassion? Won't you trust in Jesus today if you have never done so? God's wrath is real, but praise God, so is His compassion. In the words of Psalm chapter 30, verse 4 through 5, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Do you see it now? Despite the vast difference between the eternal God and frail humanity, God's steadfast love means that He is able to provide Himself as a dwelling place for sinners who deserve His wrath. And so let me ask you again, how do you define God? How do you define God? It's the most important thing about you. Friends, don't walk through life blindfolded to the truth about God. Ask God to help you see Him for who He really is. And then ask Him to help you. Follow Him as He directs your path. you pray with me? Father, Your Word rings true. Lord, we don't want to add anything to it or subtract anything from it. God, thank You for telling us who You are. Thank You for telling us that You are eternal. Lord, You are everlasting. Thank You for telling us that You're wrathful towards sin because we're sinners. And we need to know that You you hate sin. And You destroy sin. You're not just wrathful towards sin, You are wrathful toward those who commit sin. God, thank You for telling us that You are compassionate, steadfast in love, that You give us grace and You fill us with joy and You satisfy the longings of our hearts with You. God, You are our sovereign ruler, but You have also done everything that is necessary to become our dwelling place. Lord, we deserve to be rejected from You, and yet we get to dwell not only with You, but in You. You are our dwelling place. Lord, it's because of Jesus because of what you did on the cross and pouring your holy and righteous and terrible wrath out upon your Son when we deserve it. God, if there's someone here today who has never trusted in Jesus for salvation, Lord, today I pray that they would see you as the eternal God, that they would confess that they are sinners before you and you deserve your wrath, that they would rest, they would trust, they would believe, they would place their faith in your compassion and your steadfast love displayed on Calvary's cross, that they would believe in Jesus and be saved for all of eternity. 
Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation, Lord, help us not to take for granted who you are and how much you love us and how unworthy we are of that love. Father, may may thoughts, right thoughts about you lead us to sing praises to your name both here in this place when we're gathered together, but also as we leave this place. Every moment of every day, singing praises to you, God, in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord.